So I've been reading this book called Buddha's Brain. Yeah, Rick Hansen's book, Buddha's Brain. And there's a chapter in it that is, it's, uh, it's a book about Buddha's brain and it's, it's, a, it's about neuroscience, the practical neuroscience of happiness, love, and wisdom. And there's a chapter in it that really caught my attention and I wanted to talk about. And it's, and it's called Letting in the Good. And I really, I really found a lot of uh, lovely stuff in there. Um, take a step back and give a little background. You know, the Buddha taught... Uh, these these gave us these teachings, or he taught almost 2,600 years ago, and he taught present time awareness, and he taught the the meditation technique that we were doing tonight, and he taught the four noble truths and the eightfold path, and and feeling tones, and um, how to uh, shift your focus and develop present time awareness, and to be aware of unwholesome thoughts and um, so that he taught that stuff and it was written down a couple hundred years after he died and it's been handed down around the world through many many cultures all these years and now neuroscience the people who are studying the brain are finding that what the Buddha taught was really highly accurate and he was telling he was the stuff he was teaching correlates to what they're finding in the brain in, in the limbic system and the, and the neocortex, and I don't speak brain very fluently, so forgive me if you do, and I mess it up. Um, I find this fascinating, but I'm not that fluent in it. So he, they found, they are finding a lot of cor- corroboration for the Buddhist teachings in neuroscience. And one of the, one of the, um, one of the teachings that, uh, Rick Hansen talks about is wise effort. And wise effort is one of the factors in the Eightfold Path. It's, uh, and the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's teaching on how to achieve liberation from suffering, how to achieve liberation from this doing things over and over and over again, this cycle of rebirth and death and um, living in this, this, this world of dissatisfaction that we create for ourselves. And so the Eightfold Path is a way to uh, awaken and wake up to see what's really going on and not have to go through, slog through this, um, keep slogging through this. So wise effort is one of the factors in the path. And wise effort basically is, there are four efforts. One is to notice when your mind is stuck in these thoughts that are not, the word they use often in translation is not wholesome. But that can be considered not beneficial, thoughts that are not beneficial. And recognize when you're caught in those thoughts that are not beneficial. Um, do you ever have things like, do you ever call yourself names? Do you ever make a mistake and call yourself a dumbass or stuff like that? Um, so it's that voice, that's that critique that voice that's that's always kind of wagging its finger at you. That's one of the uh, examples of... Um, thinking that's not very beneficial. So the Buddha says, make the effort to recognize when that's present. Because we can be, we can go along for the ride and believe it, and when we begin to practice, we take a step back and go, wait a minute, that's not necessary. So the Buddha says, pay attention to that. And then he says to let go of it. When that thinking is present, recognize it for what it is, and make the effort to let go of it. 
and then make the effort to cultivate beneficial, wholesome thinking and, and keep it there. So there are these four efforts to see what's not doesn't serve, let go of it, and cultivate what does serve and keep it there. And so to have this wise thinking, this beneficial thinking, um, which supports wise uh, view, seeing things clearly, it supports us um, uh, living with integrity, because a large part of the, the Eightfold Path is how to live in relationship with other people and live in integrity, um, not causing harm, not hurting others, being wise with our speech, and so on and so forth. So it's a really uh, important factor in how we uh, free ourselves from suffering. So in this chapter, Taking in the Good, um, Hansen gives some neurological um, underpinnings for cultivating wise effort and gives some um, suggestions for how to cultivate beneficial thought by rewiring your brain. Because our brains are very uh, malleable. They call it neuroplasticity, that just because we think a certain way doesn't mean we're doomed to think a certain way. It's really a lot of conditioning. And that's what the Buddha taught. We are conditioned to think in certain ways. We're conditioned to react in certain ways because of our upbringing. And um, Hansen talks about these two types of memory. There's explicit memory and there's implicit memory. An explicit memory is when you remember what you had for breakfast. Some of you remember what you had for breakfast. When you remember what you did yesterday, when you remember what you did this morning, that's explicit memory. It's kind of, it's conscious and it's there. And then there's implicit memory, which is the vast store of our memory, which is below the level of consciousness most of the time, but it's kind of what runs our life. And it's, it's based usually from childhood, but not always. There are implicit memories that are more recent, but it's kind of what, um, it sets up our expectations. It's how we view the world. What is he says? It's um, implicit memory establishes our interior, in the interior landscapes of the mind. It's what it feels like to be you. It's our expectations, our emotional tendencies, and so on and so forth. So it's how we view the world and it's based on our conditioning. It's based on our experiences and we're not always aware of it. Um, a couple of examples, a few examples. I was, I'm, was listening to Bruce Springsteen's autobiography and uh, he was talking about, he had a really difficult childhood, he had a really uh, difficult experience with his father and um, Anyway, it was really, really um, not the best of worlds for him. And he talked about because of that, and he didn't know this at the time, and most of the time we don't know it. If, we're, if we do work, like if we do get involved in this practice or do other kinds of work, we begin to see these things in hindsight. But he said because of this, this rough upbringing that he had, he became very controlling. And he wanted everything. He wanted to know how everything was going to happen, and he wanted to be in charge of everything. And for his career, it worked out really well, but in intimate relationships, not so much. 
So when he kept running into walls and going, damn, I keep, I'm controlling, you know, he, he sought some help and so went to therapy and began to see this and was able to shift it. So we have these experiences oftentimes growing up in our family, in our culture, in society. You know, there's, there's cultural conditioning too. So it's, it's family of origin. You know, they talk about nature versus nurture and, and a lot of times, Nature is how we, we're, you know, what we're born with, um, our tendencies, but the nurture is so important. And we're not aware of it. You know, I just, I think I've shared it here recently. I had an epiphany lately that, um, about realizing that it was not safe in my family to make a mistake. It was not safe to be wrong. You needed to be right all the time. And, and I wonder where my perfectionism came from. Right. And, and I just, I had that epiphany. It's like, oh, and then so much is clear. It's like, why do I always do this? Why do I do, always do this? If these are implicit memories. This is our deep conditioning. And what did, the Buddha ta- what did the Buddha teach? He taught us that things are conditioned. Because of this, this happens. Because of this, this happens. You know, I have one other example of this, which is incredibly, uh, I think it's very powerful. There's a... There's a monk called, uh, named Claude Anshin Thomas. He's a Zen monk. He lives back in Massachusetts. He lives back in New England somewhere. He's, um, he, was, um, he, went, he was in the army, and he went to Vietnam uh, in the 60s. And he was kind of messed up before he went to Vietnam, and he got really messed up in Vietnam. And he came back, and he was uh, strung out in drugs and alcohol until he bumped into Thich Nhat Hanh, some of Thich Nhat Hanh's people. And he started studying with them and, um, and started to see, uh, you know, started to heal from a lot of his trauma. Um, but there was this one experience that he shared in a book. He wrote a, a book about his, his life called At Hell's Gate. And he talked about he married, this was before he started practicing and ran into Thich Nhat Hanh's people. And he started, um, he was married and they had a child and the baby was very, very young, and he just up and walked away from the family. He just up and left. And he, couldn't, he just could not comprehend why he would do that. He's like, I'm not that person. I don't want to be that, but I just can't stand to be here. And he just left. Years later, when he was in practice and really diving deep into underneath what we do when we sit and we take the time to really turn towards our suffering and our experience and our, and our internal, um, our internal uh, uh, neighborhood. He had a memory of being in Vietnam and entering a village and hearing a baby cry. And right after the baby cried, there was an explosion, which killed a lot of his platoon. And so there was this traumatic experience that was tied to a baby's crying and he didn't know what that was, and yet when he had a child, he and his wife had a child, he could not deal with the crying, and he got up and left. It was so deeply um, pushed down, but that is implicit memory. It's implicit, it's not explicit. And we do the work, and hopefully at some time it comes to be, um, it, it shows up and it becomes explicit, we begin to see it, but we have to understand that we all have these things that we are not aware of that cause us to react certain ways. If you ever ask yourself, why do I keep doing that? This is a possibility. 
So um, he Hansen talks about that, and that um, coupled with this implicit bias, impl uh, implicit memory, we have something called negativity bias in the brain. And what negativity bias is, it goes back really a long, long time down to our uh, our reptilian brain, that fight, flight, or freeze mentality, and we're much more aware of. Um, uh, uh, negative or danger signals than we are of positive. Because if we're not paying attention to the danger, we're very easily to uh, very easily eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. You know, if we don't pay attention to the danger signals, it's um, it's not so good. But the problem is the brain has a tendency to pay attention to those and kind of um, push away the positive quote. Yeah, 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 that's nice, but I gotta look out for this stuff. So there's this imbalance in the brain towards that. And so did you ever have, did it, you ever have the ex experience where somebody says, oh gee, that's really nice, or thank you for being so generous, and you go, nah, and you just push it away? Or they say, oh, that's a really nice, that's a really nice shirt, and you're like, I paid $2 at the thrift store. You know, instead of just saying thank you or whatever. You know, we just, it's, he described the, the receiving the negative um, like Velcro and it sticks and the positive is like Teflon, it just slips right off. So the brain is wired this way to see the, the negativity. So we're dealing with these things. It's a survival mechanism that we let go of the pleasant and hold on to the unpleasant. We let go of the pleasant and we hold on to the unpleasant. It's like, you know, the, the story of like if there's 100 people in the room and 99 of them agree with what you say and that one person doesn't, which is the one person you focus on? Yeah. So there was even a Simpsons like that. I remember when I watched The Simpsons when Mel Gibson was screening a movie and everybody liked it except Homer. So he... He got Homer to help him make his next movie, which was a disaster because Homer was in charge of it. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so it doesn't pay to do that. Uh, so you've, we've got these implicit biases, and we've got the implicit memories and the negative biases um, in our brain. It's just kind of how what's going on up there. But all is not lost because what we have to do. So those are those are um, these implicit memories can be beneficial or not beneficial. So they can be wholesome thoughts or not wholesome thoughts. So we begin to recognize, we begin to see them. And this is what we do in meditation. This is what you're doing on the cushion. You're sitting and you're beginning to see how your mind works. You begin to recognize your stories. You begin to recognize your patterns. These things piss me off. This is not okay. This is safe. This is not safe. Whatever it is, you begin to recognize your own stories, which is really important. Begin to see your biases, your mind's, your mind's tendencies. You know, there's the, they talk, they, we talk about the Buddhist personality types. Are you greedy? And not greedy because I want all the money in the world, but kind of tend towards craving. Or are you aversive? Do you tend towards, oh, I hate that stuff, and you're just kind of negative uh, from the outset? Or are you just kind of deluded? You know, I, you don't even notice things. 
So we find out how we show up and how we, how we, how we uh, uh, greet the world. So what we do with the, we have this, the, the implicit memory and we have the negativity bias, but we can begin to cultivate the, the beneficial and the positive. And, and, you know, when I used to think about this kind of thing, I used to think it was so lame. I used to think it's like, Ugh, no, just deal with the way things are. You know, tough it out. I went to high school in the South Bronx, so I'm like used to toughing things out, right? I was a big wuss, but, I, you know, in my mind, I thought I toughed everything out. Um, so it's, you don't suppress the negative, you acknowledge it, but you begin to cultivate the positive because, as I mentioned earlier, the brain is malleable and you can begin to rewire it. You can begin to have it start moving in a different direction. And the ways they're doing that, and when he talks about um, you cultivate and internalize the positive, um, and what you start doing is start paying attention to the positive. As I said, we have the negativity bias and the positive just kind of slides off. Start not letting it slide off. Start paying attention. And it's as simple as like walking around. Like right now, the flowers are amazing. I don't know, there's a lot of night-blooming jasmine in neighborhoods, if, unless you're allergic or you hate that smell. Really allow it to enjoy it. I love that smell of the jasmine. It can be overwhelming after a point, but um, you know when you get a whiff of it, allow yourself to experience it. Or if you hear music you like, don't just you know don't put it off. Experience it. Or if the sky is beautiful, the skies have been gorgeous this winter. Um, the clouds and and the hills are green. Look at enjoy it. Pay attention. When you're eating something that you really enjoy eating, savor it. How often have you looked forward to a meal and then looked down and your plate is empty and you don't remember eating it? It's like, it was my favorite thing. I missed it. Because you're like, ah, ga 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 and doing a hundred other things, maybe scanning. Pay attention. Allow that pleasant into the brain because it does have an impact on the rewiring of the brain. And when you do experience it, make it last. And when he says make it last, you think like, what, five minutes? He's like, no, five, ten, twenty seconds, which can seem like an eternity, but really allow it in. And when you allow it in, um, it's, what does he say? It strengthens the neural association and the implicit memory. So you begin to have pleasant associations in your implicit memory. You begin to strengthen that. Pleasant. And you're building a little bank. You're putting deposits in your implicit memory banks. And what it does is it releases dopamine, too, which is... Um, I can't remember what it what that does, but it's a real positive thing. I think you do it when you get dopamine when you exercise too. It's it's a real it makes it's a real pleasant experience. So um, when you allow those pleasant experiences in, um, there's a chemical reaction that's positive and supports the the shifting of the brain. 
Um, if someone is kind to you, experience it. Like I mentioned so often, that when people are kind, do you just kind of say, nah, I don't thank you, but? Notice if you do that. Notice if you kind of push things away. And instead, feel it. If someone is kind to you or generous or pays you a compliment, receive it. Receive it. How does that feel? Allow yourself to feel it. And that's what he says also. How do these pleasant experiences feel in your body? And we talk about that a lot. And the Buddha talked about that in the first noble truth or the uh, first foundation of mindfulness, the physical experience that you're having. We're so disconnected from our bodies. We're so in our heads much of the time that we don't feel the experience of what's happening. Unless something, oftentimes if you get bad news, it feels like you're kicked in the stomach or you get a, you know, a, a knife in your chest. But feel the positive. It really has an impact on the brain. It really cultivates the, the uh, 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 positivity. And it releases uh, oxytocin, which is another chemical. And if we um, are contemplating, you know, if somebody says something kind to us and we begin to experience it, and then we maybe bring up other memories of people who are kind to us, that, and that oxytocin is released. It's, it's the, uh, called the human bonding chemical, and it, and it supports that feeling of connection, which is up there uh, with food, shelter, and uh, in our survival things. It's like connection, human connection is, is, is like in the top three or four things that we need in this world, in this life. So to cultivate that sense of connection is so important. It really goes a long way towards our sense of well-being. When you feel really connected with another human being, there's a real sense of well-being that goes along with it. And imagine your mind absorbing it. Just imagine your mind absorbing it. As I said, I, always, I when I used to think about doing things like this, it was oh, it sounded so lame, but it's it's so wise. I see that now. Why wouldn't I? Why tough it out? There's a there's a a book and a TED talk by a woman named Jill Bolte Taylor, and she it was called My Stroke of Insight, and she was a neuroscientist. She is a neuroscientist. I'm not sure neurobiologist, neuro something rather psychologist. And she had a stroke. And when she had a stroke, she was very aware that she was having a stroke. And she was really trying the best she could. She would go back and forth, left brain, right brain. And when she was in left brain, she was like, I must call 911. And she struggled really mightily to, to read numbers and dial the phone so that she could get help. And then she'd go into the other side of the brain and go, I'm one with the universe. And so she's like going back and forth. But what's interesting is when she was healing from the brain damage from her stroke, um, a lot of the left side of the brain and a lot of her implicit memory was, was she was not, she did not have access to it. 
So a lot of these preconceived notions that she had, these expectations that she had, they were not there. But as she healed, they started coming back. And she started seeing the anger, the autopilot angry response that would come up when she was faced with things. And she would see it and go, I don't want to bring that back into my life. I was done with that when I had brain, when there was brain injury. I'm not going to cultivate it again. I'm going to move in another direction. So she did these things that he's talking about to cultivate a sense of not angrily reacting to certain things, of not bringing anger as part of her implicit response to the world. So she cultivated as part of her healing from the stroke. It can be done. And it takes these little things. This is what the Buddha talks about in effort. We make the effort to recognize the unpleasant, the unwholesome, and cultivate the wholesome. Because our brain has this neuroplasticity. And when we bring these, these pleasant experiences, the brain doesn't know we're making them up. The brain doesn't know they're not real. It thinks they're real. It's, there's, this, there's this thing called EMDR, where um, um, it's, a, I think, a therapeutic model for helping trauma. It's a, it's a model for working with trauma. And when people have traumatic experiences in their backgrounds, it's in the body, and there's the story and, and the, tr- the trigger of the trauma again and again and again and again. And what EMDR is, is it takes that experience, and it slowly... Um, brings in an alternative ending. So it's not the traumatic trigger over and over again, it's an alternative ending. And the, and the alternative, more beneficial, positive ending replaces that traumatic ending. So that the body doesn't have this traumatic response to the triggers anymore. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ease. So when you think about it, you go, oh, that's stupid. And it's like, it doesn't matter if, it's, if you think it's stupid or not, if it works. Why would, you, why would you put up with traumatic responses to things just to be tough? Me, I don't want to. Me. And, you know, and do it. So the brain does not know that it's false. The brain does not know that this didn't really happen because you've, you're retraining it. You're healing the brain. I think there's something I want to quote out of this about that healing. Positive experiences can be used to can be also used to soothe, balance, and even replace the negative ones, as I was just saying. When two things are held in mind at the same time, they start to connect with each other. That's one reason why talking about hard things with someone who's supportive can be so healing. Painful healings and memories get infused with the comfort, encouragement, and closeness you experience with the other person. So there's healing that takes place. When we bring the positive in to support the unpleasant and the the negative or the traumatic, we're healing our brain. And he also talks about the importance of the, the uh, you know, in the, in the kind and um, 
the soft and the loving um, thoughts that are so healing. When you're, um, because of the ways your brain changes its structure, your experience matters beyond its momentary impact. So the experience you have has ramifications beyond the current moment. These uh, experiences make enduring changes in the physical tissue of the brain, which affect your well-being, functioning, and relationships. Based on science, this is a fundamental reason for being kind to yourself, cultivating wholesome experiences, and taking them in. So there's a scientific reason for being kind to yourself. It heals your brain and helps you experience positive well-being. So the teaching of loving kindness that we talk about so much of the time, you know, we teach loving kindness. There's the, the, the Buddhist teaching of metta, wishing well for you, wishing well for all beings, wishing well for people you love, wishing well for people you don't love, that are difficult for you. That's I brought in at the end of our meditation today. See if you can connect with the sense of gratitude. And oftentimes teachers will say, and I say it often myself when talking about loving-kindness practice, you're getting the juices flowing. And I think talk about it as getting the heart juices flowing. But you're getting the, actually juicing up the brain. That loving-kindness really changes the brain. And loving-kindness for self is so difficult for us. Anybody, anybody find loving-kindness practice difficult for themselves? Yeah, a number of people. I, I myself included. It was so difficult because we have all these reasons why we don't deserve it. It's that negativity bias again. I can be kind to other people, but I'm not quite ready yet. I'm not quite deserving yet. The good thing about this is it's unconditional. Loving kindness practice is unconditional. And it shifts the brain. If you've ever tried it, you know, I had that experience many, many years ago when I was doing it and with neutral people, people who are familiar strangers. And I remember offering kindness practice to the checker at the supermarket. And one day I was in his line and I looked at him and I went, oh, and I was so happy to see him. And I'm like, whoa, the only place that came from was this practice. The only place that came from was this practice. And so to be kind to ourselves, to practice loving kindness, shifts the brain. Why wouldn't we want to be kind to ourselves? Sylvia Borstein has a quote in the beginning of one of her books. It says, life can be so difficult. Why would we be anything but kind? Yet we're so, we can be so critical and so judgmental and so harsh. You know, we have experiences that are difficult and then we judge ourselves on them. Or we add to it. So this is a this is a this is a, a call for practicing loving kindness because it helps the brain. It's a healing practice. You are when you do this, 
when you are actively making the effort to internalize positive experiences, you're writing a neurological imbalance, that neurological imbalance that leans toward negativity. You're writing this imbalance by cultivating this positive experience. So it's not lame. It's not Pollyanna. You know? I might be expressing my bias when I keep saying that because I was always like, oh my God, that's so lame. But it's not because I've experienced the changes in myself by doing this work. The transformation I've experienced by um, you know, being kind to myself. And through being kind to myself, I've been able to be kind to other beings. You know, they, oftentimes they say it's easier to love others before you love yourself. And that's probably true to a certain extent, but when you really learn to be kind and compassionate for yourself, it just kind of uh, allows you to be kind and compassionate to others. It's kind of this thing that works exponentially and keeps building and rolling and rolling and rolling. And if we want to, um, and if we want to live a life that doesn't cause harm to all beings, to any beings then we need to make the effort to not just not cause harm, but cultivate compassion. That's the other side of that, that uh, precept. It's we just don't not kill, we just don't not cause harm, but we cultivate compassion. It's about um, seeing suffering and making the effort to end suffering where we see it. There's that uh, bodhisattva vow, which I can always, which I always forget. It's, you know, um, Beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Suffering, what is suffering is endless, I vow to end it. You know, that type of thing. I know it's impossible, but I, I, I'm going to do it anyway. Or I'm going to, my intention is to do it. And that's what this is about. It's not about getting to an end. It's not about getting to an end point. It's about how you are in the present moment. Can you be at ease in the present moment? without getting the stuff you think you need to have, whether it be relationships, whether it be a house, whether it be a job, whether it be whatever it is, because we all have different desires. doesn't mean we get rid of our desires. We still have desires, but we're not so attached to the outcome that we suffer when it doesn't turn out the way we want it to, that we have some freedom from that craving. And we have some freedom in the moment to be at ease. There's a story of the, the monk who was chased by the tiger. And he was, ended up at the edge of this, this cliff and he kind of went off the edge of the cliff but there was a branch growing out from the side of the, the, the mountain or the, over the edge of the cliff. So he grabbed onto the branch and he's looking down and it's like, you know, rocks and certain death and he looks up and there's t this tiger just waiting for him to climb back up because he, he's going to have lunch and he's just hanging there on this branch and there's this berry growing from the end of the branch and he plucks it and he eats it and he just enjoys the berry. That's being in the moment. That's absolutely being in the moment. And again, I have this voice in the back of my head going, that's so lame. But, <laughs> but it's Because <n> <laughs> that's a voice I have in my head. But I really have had that moment where, you know, there's a difficult time. 
but you can have joy in the moment. And so this invites us not to turn, uh, um, say no to that. Say no to our experience. We say yes to our experience. I'm trying to figure out how I can fit my favorite phrase in, living with an undefended heart in here. But we do. We, we don't have to protect ourselves from our experience. Oh, there's a, there's a wonderful line in here, and he talks about living virtuously. And when we live virtuously, living with sila, living with um, the Eightfold Path on how to, you know, um, when we are... Uh, kind to all beings and we're wise with our speech and we're wise with our sexuality and we live with integrity, we're incredibly free. And I may never find it, but he says when we, when we live with integrity, we're free because we're not dependent on anyone else because we have this foundation of freedom that we stand on. We're not doing things that cause us that, that we have to be ashamed of or that we have remorse over. Because we're not reacting out of fear, we're not reacting out of anger, we're not reacting out of any of these um, um, implicit biases that are perhaps balanced towards the negative side. We're solidly on a foundation of integrity, on how we live in the world and we see things clearly. And we're not caught up in craving or aversion or ignorance. And we can stand solidly and say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done and be joyful in the moment, um, regardless of what's going on. So um, those are my five cents on uh, Buddha's brain and reorienting our, uh, our minds. And I really believe it can be done because I've had a taste of it in my own life through this practice through the teachings of the Buddha, through sitting, through making the effort to do what is offered. And, um, and now neuroscience says, yep, that's, that's probably the way to go because there's a lot of ease with that. There's a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of love and compassion. And what's not to like about that? So love to have any thoughts, any questions, any rebuttals, any comments. Yeah. How do you come to a realization that you are conditioned in this area? How do you come to the realization that you're conditioned in a certain area? I think there are many ways to do that. Um, a lot of times, uh, for me, it's been sometimes on the cushion. When you are, when you finally let go of the um, of the noise and the chatter, when you take the time to uh, make the effort to get concentrated and drop below the story, and sit with the experience of what's arising in the body, a lot of times it'll just arise on its own. The insight will just show up. And that's when they talk about this as insight meditation. If you're practicing and practicing and practicing, if you, if you have the opportunity to go on a retreat, you have this chance to spend uh, um, more than just 20 minutes or half an hour, an hour in practice, and you get to, to, to dive deeply down. I, I use this one story that I've told many times about um, being afraid of this job I was taking 
that um, in the middle of the recession, or just as the recession was starting to take, quit my job and take this job, um, director of this place, where my salary is dependent on donations, just as the recession is starting. And I'm like, what am I? And my head just wouldn't stop. It was like going back and being, it was like the ping pong. And it was like, you know, I don't know, firing a gun off in a room and it ricocheting around. It just wouldn't stop. And I went on retreat right at that point in time and I wanted to slam my head against the wall to smash my skull so that this, 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 this what if, if only, what if, if only thought would stop. And I finally, after a few days on the retreat of sitting, and they kept saying, let go of the thinking, let go of the thinking, let go of the thinking. And I let go of the thinking you just let go again and again and again and come back and come back and come back. And finally, I was able to let go of that what if, that fear-driven thinking, trying to figure shit out and come to a quietness. And what arose was not that, will I have enough money? Was I stupid? Blah, blah, blah. But what arose was a totally different question of, am I good enough to do it? Which is where the fear was. And then I was able to look back and go, oh, that's such an old story. I recognize that story from being a kid, maybe being told you're not good enough, <clears throat> whatever, and, and remembering voices that would say that to me, you know, oh, you're not good enough, and you'll never, you'll never, blah, 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 blah. And so then you recognize, oh, that's a really old story. Other times you, I've done therapy where I've had, had some support in that realm, um, some mindfulness therapy to help me kind of put things in place and say, oh, that's where that comes from. So there's any number of ways, and I think if you're struggling or if you're uh, uh, kind of in a place of, I can't quite get there, talk to someone who you trust and, and maybe they can help you figure out the next step. Because it's not like, a, oh, this is what you need to do. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a, we're all, um, we're all in a different place, and we all um, have different experiences, and we all have a different path. Um, it's kind of the, we're all walking in the same direction, but we're walking at different speeds, and we all have different edges. And so... Um, you have to find your own way with it. But I would say if you're struggling, um, find someone who has some um, experience and can perhaps help you sort it out and take suggest where to go with the next step. So you let your conditioning go to become a teacher? I let my conditioning go to become a teacher. Amazing. A lot of my conditioning. Well, and to become director of Against the Stream. That's that too. Yeah, so thank you. Thanks, Mary. Do you, I, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night yeah, and me I too. have this repetitive <laughs> thinking, right? It's like I'm, I'm preparing for a play and then the play is going to happen in two days and then when it happens, it's, it's shut down. So my mind is, is, is preparing for something that may be something on my plate that I have to do at work or some, whatever it is. And I, I'm aware that this is just root, silly thinking or mm -hmm. non-productive thinking. Mm -hmm. And I'll go, God, it's 3, 3 a.m. Oh my God, it's 4.30. I'm thinking the same crap. Is there a secret Buddhist password that you know that we can tell ourselves that that we recognize in our internal being and allows us to fall back asleep 
and know that they, that that the thinking is bullshit, and that we can be at one with the universe and be here now. Is there a secret Buddhist password? I don't know. Not that I know of. Um, I I know. I'm sorry. Next, no. Um, you know, I I'm one of those three o'clock in the morning people as well. And I mean, I've woke, years ago. I wasn't working. Twenty years ago, I wasn't working, and I woke would wake up in the middle of the night and go, "What'll I do if my car breaks down?" And I would worry and worry and worry. And then like three days later, I went, there's nothing wrong with your car. But you just make shit up to worry about. And um, But suppose there are things. And what happens now is I recognize that it's just the mind. The mind, there's some, and the thought arises. And then there's some maybe some fear around it. And I sometimes can't even figure it out. But And I try not to figure it out. And what I do is I don't fight it anymore. I don't say, don't think this anymore. I recognize that it's, it's there. And so when you don't fight the unpleasantness, you're, you're stepping back. It's like, you know, when you, I slammed the, my fingers in a door yesterday. And so the immediate reaction is to tense up. And what I did is I let it go and I went, okay, just don't fight the pain, just feel the pain. Because when you tense up, you're fighting it, and you're, you're in like, I hate this pain. Eh, I'm so stupid. Eh, why did I do that? Eh. And that just adds to the discomfort. When you step back and breathe, you just go, okay, that's painful. What does that feel like? And so when you're in the middle of the night, and that's happening, um, I started, and I learned this from one of the teachers, is start doing loving kindness. Recognize, okay, I may not get back to sleep. Can I be just be okay with that? And when you see you're caught up in the thinking, come back and do some, may I be happy, may I be healthy. So you might still be tired in the morning, but there'll be an ease that's not there if you're fighting it. Oh, when am I going to stop thinking this? So you see there's a different, there's a different relationship to that thinking. And I still wake up, I would think I woke up this morning about three or something, and I'd my brain just makes shit up to worry about. One kernel of reality will move in, and then it'll just kind of embellish. And I'm like, oh, what? A, oh, oh. And then I just go, okay, the mind is doing that. Can I just breathe? And it sometimes it takes a while to remember to do that. But when I do, it's, it's, and sometimes I fall back to sleep, sometimes I don't. But there's, as I said, there's this ease. That's not, it's less frenzied. Yeah, you look at the clock, oh my God, it's 4.30. Oh, I've got to get back to sleep. Oh my God, I'm going to be tired yeah. tomorrow. Oh my God, it's 5 o'clock. Oh I know. Oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do tomorrow? And it becomes kind of a catastrophe. It's right. It's catastrophe. Right, yeah. So so let's see if you can let go of that and go, well, I just may not go to sleep and I will just see if I can just bring some kindness. May I offer some kindness to myself? Just do some loving kindness for yourself. That's that's what I try and do, and it's really made a difference. So, thanks.